If you're new here, welcome to Redemption Parker. We are in the middle of a series called Framework. It is our heart and our desire, our hope, that you would have a a, a deeper, richer, better understanding of who God is, what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus that flows out of this film. We say that to have a deeper, richer understanding of God. That's what we're we're here for, by the way. And isn't that the most kind of audacious, ridiculous thing? That, that we are gathered and, and we're saying we're going to meet together as God's people rescued and redeemed and, and commune with the living God of the universe. Like, we just should not take that for granted. Like, we should not just kind of be like, ah, ah, maybe I'll worship God today. Maybe I'll see what God has to say to me. Like, no, if we really believe that God has come down, condescended, and revealed Himself to us, is that not the most important thing ever in our lives? And so we want to just say, Lord, drill us deeper. Stir our affections. I know our hearts go, are, are prone to wander. I know our passions are prone to get cool. But, but just for a moment, I'm just caught with this idea that, man, this is the most important thing that you could be doing with your life right now. Because God wants to meet with you to condescend, to His Spirit wants to stir in you. He wants to reveal Himself to you. That is amazing. So let us not ever take that lightly. That God has revealed Himself to us. God has uh, created the world and it is good. It was very good. And then we saw that God, uh, that, that we had rebelled, our first parents, and sin and, and death and sickness entered in the world. There was a brokenness, but God began to unfold a mysterious plan of redemption. Uh, he came to Abram and said, I'm going to choose you to be a blessing to all the nations. And then last week we looked at the pillar uh, of the Exodus when, when God rescued His people out of slavery. He took them through uh, the Red Sea and, and, and just this picture of saving His people and saving us through that. And today we're going to look at another pillar for our deeper understanding of who God is and who we are in His family. It is known as the law. You simply cannot understand the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, without having an understanding of the purpose, the goodness of the law. God's going to meet with His people He's going to meet with Moses and he's going to give them the law. He's going to thunder from heaven. He's going to come down on a a mountain called Sinai and with smoke and fire and and loud noise and the earth is going to tremble uh, and the people are going to tremble at the base of the mountain. God is going to speak. Again, that is the most ridiculous thing if it's not true. Like we're the biggest fools on the planet if that's not true. But if that is true, how could we be cool to that? Like, how could we be indifferent to, to a God who would reveal Himself and say, this is my heart. This is what I want for my people. And so, with that, I, I want to just pray for us and then we'll, we'll, we'll continue to look at, we'll start in Exodus chapter 19 and uh, we'll begin to just walk through that. Exodus 19 to 24 is where God gives the law. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we, we get to come before You. What a, an amazing thing, once again. Not in our own righteousness, but in the name of Your Son. And in the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we, we're asking audaciously once again that you, creator of the universe, would meet with us. God, would you meet with every person here? Lord, the fact that we have breath in our lungs and that synapses are firing in our brain right now is just evidences of your grace that we do not deserve. And so, Lord, would you use those and order those things in such a way that our worship is stirred and our joy is stirred in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And when we 
talk about the law. We are, as a culture and as a people, naturally, uh, I would say, put off by that. Like, like we, we, don't, we don't want that. There's a lot of reasons people, modern people give to rejecting God. Sometimes it's just ignorance. Like if you talk with people, uh, they've formed and shaped a, a vision of what they think God would be, and they say, I, I don't want anything to do with that. This is where I love Brad Dugas, uh, elder here. He, if you're ever talking with him and it's something like kind of intense, like he won't like argue back with you. He'll ask you, hey, tell, tell me what you mean by that. Explain yourself. And, and he'll just ask questions. Like let, let you define the terms. Let you define what you mean. And, and, and if you were to do that, it, like I, I try to learn from him because often if you were to talk to someone that says, man, I reject God. And if you would just say, well, tell me what you mean. What, what kind of God do you reject? And they'll paint a picture of a God who is not God. And then you can just say, good news, I reject that God too. Maybe we could look together at the Bible and see who God actually is. But, but it's not just ignorance out there of who God is. Uh, the, the st- all the studies show that there is a growing uh, illiteracy to the Bible, growing ignorance of God in the church. So in 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith uh, interviewed thousands of Christian teenagers, teenagers who had grown up in the church, had gone to youth group and, uh, as they were coming out. So that's 2005. They're in their mid-30s and uh, early 40s now. Uh, interviewed these people and they wanted to get a sense of what is the spiritual belief mindset of these kids coming. These are Christian kids, not just the kids in general, but what, what is it? And he defined this term that has become quite well-known. It's uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. He says the basic worldview of these kids that are coming through the church uh, are, are moralistic therapeutic and deism, meaning that God basically wants you to live a moral life. Like that's what, kind of what God cares about. And, and it's therapeutic. So if you have any problems or needs, like you can go to God as kind of a therapist. But deistic also, meaning like he's not actively involved. He, he's not actively present. Oh, maybe if you need him for some therapy, you could uh, schedule an appointment. But other than that, it's just this kind of uh, practical atheism. And this was the worldview. And this is the worldview of, of many churches. But it's gone from bad to worse. Because now it's not moralistic therapeutic deism. Some have said it is PTD. It's progressive therapeutic deism. So, so let's remove any sense of maybe there's a moral standard. And now it's a kind of a hyper-libertarianism. And that, that the, the message today is that God, if there is a God, He just wants you to be you. Whatever your truth is. Live that out. So if you are biologically, you have the chromosomes that say you're male, but you feel deep down that, that you are, are really female and you want to play college basketball on the female team, like you do that and far be it from anyone to push against that because our highest value now is your autonomous self. Whatever you decide is true and then you just run with that. And so, remove moralism. If you need God, He's going to be a therapist for you. And He's not actually going to be actively involved. Now, why do I say all that? Because we are going to look at God as He reveals Himself. And though we reject authority, governmental, spiritual, or any kind of authority outside of ourselves, I want to show you that God is absolutely authoritative. And that is absolutely good news. It is great news that He is 
perfect in all he does. That he knows all things. That he is all-powerful. That he is holy. That he has divine and justified wrath. That, that, that there can be nothing that is not perfect in his presence. And when he exercises his wrath, it is out of his goodness that he does that. And this God who, uh, exer- that demands perfection is also a God who provides it for us in Jesus. Because he is a God who is perfect in his grace, perfect in his mercy, perfect in his love, perfect in his justice, and Jesus brings that for us. And so my hope is that as we look at the law today, that you would be stirred for a, a worship of God that maybe you didn't think you could get for looking at the law. So with that, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, just by way of setup, uh, God has rescued his people out of the slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, taken them to the wilderness, and then we pick it up in Exodus 19 verse 2. It says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So the Israelites knew what was going on here because in the ancient Near East, uh, a lot of the cities were built around hills or mountains or man-made ziggurats and because this was a way for people to climb the hill, make their offerings, and earn the favor of the God or the gods. But now God has led them to a hill called called Sinai and it's not like anything else we've ever seen. It's not like you go up there and do something and then maybe God will do. No, God has come down in a sense and they are terrified we read about it. And and naturally so. I mean, go to Lookout Mountain and all of a sudden fire and smoke and the voice of God and the earth is shaking. We would be terrified. But God is going to reveal himself to his people in this moment. But you need to know the context by which he's going to give the law. Sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments as if God just showed up one day, dropped some tablets and said, here's what I want you to do, and moved on. And we're like, oh gosh, now we've got to do this. That's not the context. It flows out of his saving work. Look at what it says. It says, verse 3, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, so the law flows out of, first and foremost, God doing the saving works. He, he's reminding them that I have saved you, I've rescued you, you did nothing to add to your salvation, and now as you are my people, I want to reveal to you what it means to live under the kind rule and reign of my sovereign kingdom. But, but it starts with, he saved us. It's not, doesn't, the law doesn't start, do these things and you will be saved. It starts with, I saved you, therefore, this is what life in the kingdom should look like for you in your community. Okay, so that's very important to understand. Now, I want to show you three good purposes of law. I'm sure there's 10 million good purposes of the law. I want to show you three good purposes of the law today. I'll just say them up front. The, The first good purpose is that the law helps set us apart as holy, as a holy community. So the law sets God's people apart as holy. The second one is that that the law reveals God's good heart. His good heart. So it sets us apart as holy. It reveals his good heart. And third, and and the emphasis in the New Testament is this. The law ushers us to grace. 
So it sets us apart, it reveals his heart, and it ushers us to grace. So let's look at the first one here, where it sets us apart as God's people. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now let's just stop there for a moment. When, when he says, you will be my treasured possession... For all the earth is mine. This is earthly kingdom language. The treasured possession in the Hebrew means personal property. So, so in a sense, a king over his kingdom reigns and rules and, and owns everything. But, but, but in his castle or in his home, he's got, uh, he's got his own personal treasures, his own things that he delights in. Yes, he owns the whole kingdom, but, but these things are special. These things are his affection. And he says, you, my people, are going to be my personal property. You'll be my treasured possession. Yes, I have dominion and rule over every square inch of the universe. But you... And I'm going to take special delight in you. You will be my treasure and I will be your treasure. He's setting his treasure apart. Well, that's not just, that's not all it is. It says, you'll be my treasure possession for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what's going on there? He's using kingdom language. So it's not just that you were in slavery in Egypt and, and now I, uh, I let you go and you can just do whatever you want and all that. He's like, no, you, you're, you're going to be kings and queens in my kingdom. You're not just slaves into normal people. You're slaves into a crown with His righteousness, crowned as kings and queens. Not only that, it says you'll be a kingdom of priests. Well, what, what is that about? Well, what's the role of a priest? The role of the priest is to help usher people into the presence of God. To offer sacrifices, to offer prayers. And he says, all of my people, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth because you will be a kingdom of priests. And this is still the role of the church today. Our, our role is to be a kingdom of priests that usher people into the presence of God. He says, you will be a kingdom of priests. You will pray for the people. You will help people encounter me. You will be ambassadors for me. And you will be set apart as a holy nation. That's, that's what the word holy means. To be set apart. You will be radically different. A radically different community. And the law that he's going to give his people it was unlike anything that had ever been seen on the planet before in the laws. And if the people were to live out this law, man, it, it would be an aroma to the nations. It would be a, a light to the world. It would be a city on the hill, this kind of people. Because people would see, if that's the kind of God that you worship, we want that as well. So it sets us apart as holy. That is a good purpose in the law. Well, the second one is that it reveals God's good heart. Let's skip forward. Well, let me just uh, actually read verse 7 here. It says, so, so Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, listen to what they said. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they're like, yeah, we're down. We'll do it. We're good. So let's look at the second purpose. To reveal God's good heart. Skip over to chapter 20. This is known, if you have on the, the bold title, chapter title, The Ten Commandments. Uh, something like 93% of Americans can't name them. 
And we, we say, this is what God, in a special revelation, actually said about himself. So do we really believe that or not? And that's another sermon for another time. But uh, I, I want to see that these, are, these commandments are not burdensome. They are uh, an overflow of God's good heart. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So again, reminding them, I saved you, I rescued you. And now this is what it looks like. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You say, well, you know, that's just number one, Mark. Uh, There's nine more to go. I want to suggest to you that all you really need is that one. Martin Luther, who has studied this, smarter than me, studied it more than me, he said, man, it is something else that God could consolidate all that he has for his people into ten commands. That's good editing. But, But it's something even more that it all flows out of the first one. If we obey this first one, we will obey the rest, the other nine. If we break any of the other nine, it's because we first broke this one. What's that? It's because God is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. I will reign and rule on your heart. And out of a relationship with me, out of love for me, you will live in such a way that will fulfill all the other commandments. And so when he, when, he, when he offers that up, it is a good thing. It's a, a good thing in his heart when he says, I want you to worship me. Matthew talked about this last week. Because he is the only one worthy of worship. If you put anything else on the throne of your heart, it, it is an idol and it cannot bear up under the weight of your worship. It will get crushed and it will crush you. And so when we, uh, when we break any of the other commands, it's because we broke this first one. When we lie, when we steal, when we murder, when we cheat, when we lust, when we have adultery, it's because we put something or someone else on the throne of our heart and, and removed God from the first commandment. You see, this is out of God's good heart when He invites us and commands us, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, for the longest time, I was confused by Psalm 119. The longest psalm in the Bible... 176 verses, the psalmist repeatedly and specifically just delights in the law of God. Like, I love your law. I love your instructions. I love your commands. I love, and I was always like, well, I mean, that's good. I, I love Jesus more. I love grace. I love mercy. I love all that. But, but, but I started to see this week, man, I, I get it. These are good things. That God would command us to have Him on the throne of our hearts is for our joy and for His glory. And so it is out of the overflow of His goodness to us. Now, we, we get this, right? Even the things that are like, man, that's tough. So, two of my kids were born in Japan. And one was six months old when we got there. And, and where we lived, our house was connected to the church. And out, out in front of our house is a very busy four-lane road. Just cars just flying back and forth. And we commanded our kids, you won't play around this road. You certainly won't play in the road, right? So that's, that's a good command. And, and when they would toddle toward the road, we would, uh, we would command them, stop. And if they continued to toddle, we would raise our voice. It would sound maybe harsh. And if they continued, we would run and grab them. And you know what? We would run and grab them and discipline them. Not because we were bad parents, but because we were good parents. Because we love our kids. We want them to flourish. We want them to live life to its fullest. 
And so if we can understand that, that kind of love, that kind of good discipline between a father and a daughter, then how much more is the infinite gap between God's goodness and us when He commands us? And so God's law reveals His good heart. Not only that, if the people were to to embrace this, they would be a radically different community. In all ways, uh, this is so uh, radically different. Think about the areas of, uh, of sex, money, and power. This is the first time that a law came to a people that said, uh, adultery is not just bad for, for women, it's bad for men. And I, and I, and I have a special purpose for, for sexual union, and I want you to enjoy that, but here's the boundaries for your flourishing in that. That, that was totally different. When it comes to money, and that God's people as a community were commanded to give 10%, to give a, a, a tithe. But, but every third year they had a special offering for the poor, so it worked out to be about 23.3% of their income. Now you might think, man, that, that is way too much because you don't understand the generosity of God. You don't understand the community nature that God is. Yes, God saves individuals, and you have an individual relationship, but God is also making a community, a kingdom of priests. And this community was to be so radically generous that, that they would be a blessing to all the nations. Think about power. In every other world system, when people have power, they use it to oppress and put down the weak. And God says, in this system, those of you that have power, it's to lift up and, and raise up the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. So the widow, the orphan, the slave, the immigrant, the outsider, the aliens, they are to be afforded all of the same blessings in your community as everyone else. Why? Because you know what it was like to be in slavery. You know what it was like to be oppressed. And just as I lifted you up, I want you to be a community that lifts other people up. And in Deuteronomy 15, God says, if you will obey my law, there will be no poor people in your your community. Because there is this radically generous, radically uh, God-centered, because God is to be on the throne, and they are to live out of that. That community is going to be different because it reveals God's good heart. But there is a third good purpose to the law, and we see this in chapter 24. We begin to see it. It is God's good purpose to usher, use the law to usher us to grace. To usher us to grace. Let's, let's look at Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Exodus 19-24, through 24, Moses is going to put that in a book. And he's going to give that to them. And they're like, yes, we'll do it. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Down to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Except they won't. You can read on, and it's not, but a couple weeks later, Moses is up on the mountain. And the people start to freak out. They're like, where is he? He's not coming down. He's our leader. They go to his brother Aaron. They're like, Moses isn't doing it. So could we break the first and second commandment? And would you form us an idol? And Aaron's like, okay, give me your gold. He fashions this crude little golden calf. And they're like, yes. We we love that thing. Put it out there. Let's bow down. Look at this. This is amazing. And they, they get on their face and they worship the calf. 
They're like, oh, that's so good. They break the law. Immediately they break the law. And this is going to be the story throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God's people turning their back on God and saying, we like this. We want this little wooden thing or, or, or this. We're, we're going to bow down. We're going to worship that. And God pursuing His people, pursuing His people, disciplining His people, disciplining His people, trying to draw them back. But they just won't. Their hearts are prone to wander. Oh, oh they think, no, we will obey everything. We'll, we'll do it. They should have just said, God, we can't do it apart from you. They were trusting in themselves. They thought, yes, we can do this. Verse 8, Moses ratifies the covenant and Moses took the blood. So there was shed blood. There was a sacrifice because this is a covenant and threw it on the people. Again, we we know what this is. This is uh, saying, may what happened to these animals happen to you if we are to break this covenant. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They're going to break the covenant. Blood is going to have to be shed. So they're going to usher in a sacrificial system for that. But you say, well, Mark, that's, that's Old Testament. You know, let's get to the New Testament where there's only grace and mercy. When we get to Jesus, what, what is Jesus going to do with the Ten Commandments? I mean, we, we, we think of Jesus as like, well, no, it's, it's all grace. It's all mercy. But Jesus first doubles down. He's like, oh, you thought those were hard. No, you have no idea. Listen to what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come. This is Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I imagine there is an audible groan at this point. What do you mean, Jesus? The scribes and the Pharisees, they're the most righteous people. That's why they're scribes and Pharisees. We could never do what they do. Jesus says, no, you've got to do it better than them. Do, do you feel the weight now of it? Do you feel the weight of the law crushing? Like, oh man, that is really bad news. He's like, no, 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 it gets worse than that. He goes on, he says, you've heard that it's said if you're angry. Or if you commit murder, you've broken the law. He says, no, it's not just if you commit murder. If you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of breaking the law. And they're all like, well, I thought I was doing good. I haven't murdered anyone, but I've been angry. Jesus says, you're guilty. Well, what about lust? Well, I haven't committed adultery. Well, have you lusted in your heart? Then you're guilty of breaking the law. Jesus uses the law as a spiritual MRI. It might look good on the outside, but, but as you look at the MRI, you say, there's some brokenness. There's, there's a lot of brokenness here. And if we use the law as an x-ray or an MRI, we're like, well, I haven't obeyed the first commandment. I have put other things on the throne of my heart. I have worshipped other things. I have lied. I have stolen. Uh, according to Jesus' standard, I have committed adultery. 
I, I have uh, committed murder in my heart. Now, what you should hear in this moment is, oh, you should not hear, oh, well, that's true of everyone, so we're all good. No, what you should hear is the right and just condemnation of that sin on you right now and feel the weight so that there is a longing, a begging to get out from underneath the weight of the law. You know, one guy named the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus points to the Ten Commandments. He's like, you know, the biggies. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. And the guy's like, yeah, I've done all those since birth. And so Jesus applies it as a spiritual MRI. He says, well, good. Um, Tell you what, why don't you just sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, which is amazing. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Follow me. Says the man got sad and went away sad because he had great possessions. What, what was going on? He was breaking the first commandment. As Matthew told me once, he was possessed by his possessions. God, Jesus just revealed his heart. No, no you, you don't really worship God. You worship your stuff. And therefore, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. So there's this longing. There's this like, oh gosh, Lord, we can't do it. When we look at the MRI, when we look at the x-ray, it looks really bad beneath the surface. And it should. Paul put it like this to the Romans. He says, now the law came to increase the trespass. Romans 5.20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the purposes of law is to usher us to grace, to feel our need, that we desperately need the grace and mercy of God. Here's how Luther put it, Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Galatians. It's a long quote, but every part of it is good, so I want to read it to you. He says this, The law is a mirror to show a person what he is like, a sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish? This, that we may find the way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. God is the God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted. It is His nature to exalt the humble, to comfort the sorrowing, to heal the brokenhearted, to justify the sinners, and to save the condemned. The fatuous idea, listen to this, that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore therefore, first take the sledgehammer of the law in his fist and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came into the world, not to break the bruised reed, not to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sin to all the captives. This is where you say amen. Amen. So now we... Under the pressure of the law, our failure to keep the law, our failure to be the kind of community God would say is going to be a light to the world, we say, God, we can't do it apart from you. And now the gospel comes in. You know, when Jesus died for you, he did not just forgive you, 
He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His active obedience, his life is now credited to your account as if you did all the things Jesus did. You perfectly kept the law. You perfectly loved God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. It's as if you did all that. This is good news. So these are three good purposes of the law. Now, Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I, I thought Christianity was just a thing where I do my part, God does His part. Well, hear this. You will never do enough. But Jesus has. Maybe today is the day that you just confess and repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I, I, I need your righteousness. I believe what you did. I, I want to trust in you. The Bible says you will become a new creation. You will get a new heart. And then the great news for those of us that have done that, Jeremiah 31, 33 tells us, that He will give us a new heart. He will write the law on our hearts. So it's no longer external, it's internal. That by His Spirit, we will walk in step with the law. We will put God on the throne of our hearts. We will love one another. We will care. We will be generous community. We will be a city on the hill. When the nations look at us and the community looks at us and says, man, I want to be a part of that. And God will do His good work. To that end, let me pray for us. So Father, we thank you for your good and great purposes in the law. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to be afraid of the law anymore because you've fulfilled it. And that you've given us your spirit for those of us that have trusted in you to walk in step with the law, to enjoy you and glorify you forever. Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of community, Lord. On this side of eternity, we still struggle, we still wrestle, we still fall short of the glory of God, but we know that you have credited us with your righteousness. So Lord, help us to walk in what's true of us in Jesus. Help us to be a community that lifts up the poor and the oppressed. Help us to be a community that is generous with our time, talent, and treasure. Help us to be a community that treasures you and other people see us treasure you, that they would want to treasure you as well. Lord, thank you that we can do none of this ourselves. But by you, all things are possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.